Hey friends, if you got a Bible, I'd love for you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You can turn on your phones. There are Bibles as you walk in the door that are just there to your left. If you don't have a Bible, please take one as you walk in. Those Bibles are for you. They're our gift to you. Please take it home. There's nothing more precious than having God's Word available. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. For those of you who don't have Bibles, Garrett is going to pass out the text to you. Thank you, brothers. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to be reading beginning at verse 3. This is the word of the Lord. He intends it for you. It's meant to change you. Give attention to it as it's read. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. And last of all, As to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to even be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed." Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because he testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is indeed true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope, in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expected, accepted, who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him and put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. 
Otherwise, why do, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, if I fought with beasts at Ephesus, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There was a, uh, a scientific study done uh, last month in New York. It was done with milkshakes. It's a kind of scientific experiment I want to be a part of, right? They, they had two groups of people with milkshakes, French vanilla milkshakes, They gave the first group of people a 170-calorie French vanilla milkshake. It was a healthy alternative. There was very little fat in it. It was actually relatively good for you. And then they gave the second group of people a 600-calorie French vanilla milkshake. It was advertised as an indulgence drink. Just go at it. Have it. You deserve it. And then they took both groups— 30 minutes later, and they asked them, how hungry are you? You see, the scientists were going after this hormone in your body that's in your gut, in your belly. It's called ghrelin. It's kind of a funny play on words, isn't it? It's called ghrelin. It's the hormone that makes you hungry. When you have more ghrelin, you experience more hunger pains. You're hungrier. And so they took blood samples of these people 30 minutes after they had the shake, and they tested to see which group was really hungrier. And you know what they found? The people who had the 170 calorie shake 30 minutes later said, yeah, I'm starving. And they indeed had more ghrelin. They had more hunger pains in their bloodstream. But the other group, the the group who had the 600 calorie shake, they were satiated. They were replete. They were totally full. And in fact, their bloodstream showed very little ghrelin whatsoever. And the scientists at Columbia were like giddy. They were so excited because, as you might expect, what was the deal, right? They were the exact same shake. And they were excited because more and more science is revealing that what you think, what you believe, matters. It matters so much that it even can change your physiology. Isn't that interesting? You know, the funny thing about faith these days is that faith is in. Like, everybody's talking about what they believe. Even the scientists, many of whom don't profess faith in a religion at all, are talking about how faith can change even your physical physiology. In fact, the lead scientist for the study, her name is Dr. Aaliyah Crum. She said this. Listen to this. She said, our beliefs matter. In virtually every domain, in everything we do. Now this in a scientific journal that is not supposed to bring faith at all to the table. How much our beliefs matter is a mystery, but I don't think we've given enough credit to the role of our belief in determining our physiology, our reality. We live this very simple metabolic science, calories in, calories out the truth of the matter is faith does matter it matters because it affects your physiology 
And it matters because no matter who you are when you walked into this room, you actually have a very complex set of beliefs about the world, many of which you're not familiar with because you have not really reflected on them or had somebody help draw them out. Whether it's self-achievement through having a three-car garage and three healthy kids that are on the honor roll, or it's making a six-digit salary, or it's trying to get out of debt, or it's trying to get you know, seven digits in the bank, whatever it is. We all have this faith construct that we live by that makes our life worth it. There's a writer whose name is David Foster Wallace who was a professed agnostic, deeply cynical, and he gave a commencement speech at Kenyon College And this is what he had to say. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. This coming from a man who did not profess faith, but he knew that there was no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping because everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. Be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the wicked mother goddess or the four noble truths or some infrangible set of ethical values is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. On one level, he says to these graduates, you already know this stuff. It's been codified in myths and proverbs and cliches and bromides and epigrams and parables, the skeleton of every great story. The trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power, you'll feel weak and abandoned. Worship your intellect being seen as smart, and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Listen, what you believe matters. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not only the bedrock of the Christian faith, it is also the central historical event in the entire story of humanity. And this morning, no matter where you are in your faith journey, you've got to be confronted with the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And you need to be confronted with it because in being confronted by the central tenet of Christianity, you receive the assurance of God's incredible love for you, proven in that empty tomb. So we're in the moments we have together, we're gonna look at the three arguments Paul gives us for the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. If you have the text or the sheet before you, you have it on your phones or your devices, lower your eyes to it and look at it with me. Corinth was on the isthmus between the Aegean Sea and the Peloponnesian Peninsula. Say that three times fast. Paul spent 18 months of his life there. He invested into these people. He found a church, the church in Corinth. And then he left and he spent three years in a city named Ephesus. And when he was in Ephesus for three years, he got word that these brothers and sisters that he had poured his life into for 18 months in Corinth had essentially forgotten everything he taught them. 
there was rampant sexual immorality. People in the church were sleeping with each other. They were, you know, ancient swingers. You had um, not only people switching wives, sleeping with each other, you had people who were being divisive about worship. You had people arguing in the midst of worship. You had people in the Lord's Supper who were taking the bread and eating all of it before the guy behind them came up. I mean, you had just these petty, stupid things in the church. And then you had people that were actually baptizing each other for the dead. Like, you know, Aunt Mildred who passed away. Well, let's, I'll, I'll baptize myself on her behalf just in case something went wrong. Listen, it was a jacked up, messed up church. It kind of reminds me of my own heart, right? It reminds me of us. A difference of degree, no doubt, but not of kind. And Paul, being a very good pastor, got this news and he wrote them a letter, a pastoral letter. It was the third missionary journey for the Apostle Paul, which means that he had a lot of experience as a pastor. And so he sat down and he took every one of their issues and he addressed them one by one by one. And at the very end of the book, in chapter 15, he comes to the central tenet of the gospel, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he hammers it home with three arguments to give them the assurance that God loves them. To give them the comfort that what they believe is not just theoretical, it is rooted in history. So we're gonna look at those three arguments together. Are you ready? Okay. Number one, the historical argument. Look at verses three to seven. For I delivered to you as of first importance that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. In accordance with the scriptures, what does that mean? That's the Old Testament, right? Places like Isaiah 53 where it says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He was put to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. 600 years before Jesus, they read things like that. And there's more beside He was raised. He was buried. And he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of whom are still alive though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Look, Paul affirms the resurrection as a historical event. That Jesus, his body physically rose from the dead. It is a historical fact that this happens. Listen, there were a lot of messiahs back then. Did you know that? There's a lot of people in the first century who claimed to be the messiah. But none of those fringe groups would dare say that their hero, their leader, their chief, their messiah rose from the dead. Why not? Well, the answer is easy because you could see that his body is still interred. It's still in the ground. But Paul has the audacity to say, our Messiah has been raised from the dead and the empty tomb proves it. And and if you take issue with this, that's okay. That's okay. 
Just go ask one of the people who saw it. In 10 separate places in the Gospels, there are accounts where people saw the resurrected Jesus. He appeared to individuals like Mary Magdalene and the women and to Peter and to James. He appeared to them at a wide variety of locations, by the sea, near Jerusalem, in the, tomb, in the garden near the tomb, on the road to Emmaus. He appeared to people with all kinds of moods. It wasn't like they were transfixed. They weren't on the same drug. They were living their life. The fishermen were distracted by their fishing. He appeared to them. Thomas doubted. He appeared to Thomas in the midst of his doubt. Some were, the women were weeping. He came to them in their mourning. You know, Jesus didn't just appear to people like on the corner of 86 and 129th, you know, by rib crib. Like he, he appeared to them through all different sets of circumstances in life. And Paul is saying that's testimony to the fact that he really rose from the dead. It's historical. And if you don't believe me, just go ask anybody who saw it. Most of them are still alive, though some have died. He says some have fallen asleep. That doesn't mean they're really sleeping. It just is a metaphor for that they're dead. And the application for us is very simple. Christianity is the only faith in the world that is rooted in a historical event of a resurrected God. And that should give us this profound sense of assurance that God indeed is real. Listen, so many of us come here doubting. We've professed the Apostles' Creed. We say he was raised from the dead, but you don't believe it. You need to be reassured of God's goodness and his love for you. And the first place Paul goes is he takes you back to the historical fact, something with which historians have argued for centuries. And I hope you will argue it too. In fact, I hope you'll go and try to disprove it because it'll, make, it'll help all of us have our Sundays back. I'll be out of a job, but it'll be the least of my problems. The second argument he gives is an argument that's personal. Look what he says at verse 8. The resurrection changes people. Last of all, as to one untimely born, verse 8, he appeared to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to even be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Listen, Paul was the Johnny-come-lately in the apostles. He was the one who was found on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. It says he was one untimely born. It was like he was a baby that wasn't in full gestation in his mommy's tummy. He was ripped out of the womb early by Jesus and thrown into action. This Hebrew of Hebrews, this Pharisee of Pharisees, he was the poster child of good Jewish life. And God used him through a violent personal encounter with him on the road to Damascus to put him as the foremost missionary to the Gentiles. He wasn't the least of the apostles. Paul's just being humble. He says in 2 Corinthians eleven five that he's not inferior to any of the apostles. In Galatians 2, he confronted Peter to his face about his duplicity and legalism. And Paul goes on, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And this grace toward me was not in vain. 
I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Listen, Paul gives a personal argument for the resurrection. His life had been radically changed. You know that place in Philippians chapter 3 where it kind of gives Paul's resume. You know, it says he was from the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was an A-plus student in every grade, had everything memorized. He was the kid in Sunday school who had all the gold stars. And yet Paul says, I count all of that as rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Reminds me of the story of many of you in this room. Reminds me of my own story. A kid running from God who in junior high was slapped upside the head after a a very, very rough year and reminded that Jesus is enough for me. It reminds me of the story of a lesbian English professor in Syracuse named Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. This is her story. She taught English at Syracuse. She lived with her girlfriend, And she said, I tried to toss the Bible and all of its teachings in the trash. I really tried, she says. But I kept reading it. Reading it not just for pleasure, but reading it because I was engaged in a research project trying to refute the religious right from a lesbian feminist perspective. And after my second or third or maybe fourth attempt, fourth pass through the entire Bible, something started to happen. The Bible got to be bigger than I was, and it absolutely overflowed into my world. I fought against it. And then one day, one Sunday morning, no different from any other Sunday, I rose from the bed of my lesbian lover, and an hour later, I sat in the pew at the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church, and I went there very conspicuous of the fact that I didn't fit in, but I really had to confront this God. And Professor Butterfield says she walked out of that church and she can't describe it to you, but something was different. And several months later, she was able to say, I cannot believe I'm saying this. I'm a Christian. Listen, Paul's argument here is a very personal argument. The resurrection changes lives. Because it's the power to take an English professor from Syracuse. It's the power to take somebody who's working the night shift at somewhere in town and to totally change them, to revolutionize their life. We could all share stories of how that's happened in this room. The resurrection matters because it changes people. But many of us say, well, you know what? You know, beliefs change a lot of people. Like they changed the 9-11 bombers, didn't they? Like, okay, so you want to tell me next, I'm sure, that the apostles died for their faith. Okay, well, you can go there, preacher, that's fine. And they did. But you know what else? You know who else died for their faith? The guys flying the airplanes into the Trade Center, they died for their faith too, right? What's the difference? Ah, that's a great question. The difference is this. People can die for wrong beliefs all the time. People who die for their beliefs today, they die for their beliefs because somebody told them something was true. 
But these apostles, these 12 apostles that Peter writes about in 1 Corinthians 15, died for their faith, not because somebody told them it was true, but because they saw it with their own eyes. That's a totally different issue. It wasn't hearsay. They saw the evidence. And each one of them, except for the apostle John, died a gruesome death. So you tell me, Either they died for a lie, which would take an incredible amount of willpower, wouldn't it? Or they were crazy, or it really happened. Well, some of you may say, well, okay, great. Well, I just, I just don't believe that the resurrections happened. Well, I, you know, I'm with you. Like, they don't normally happen. Like, I haven't seen one this week. That's Okay. That's, I totally get that, and I'm with you. But just because you haven't ever seen it doesn't mean it hasn't happened. In fact, I would argue that the burden of proof is actually on you to prove that it didn't happen. The Bible doesn't ask you to have an uncritical belief, just a freely, willy-nilly belief. It actually asks you to be very critical. and It's actually asking you to Examine the evidence of the resurrection. So examine it. I'm not asking you to have an uncritical belief. I'm actually asking you to get critical. Third, this is probably the most, I think the most powerful in Owasso. Mom and dad. Most of us, most of us may not believe the resurrection or most of us struggle with it because we want to be right and we, we, we really can't afford the emotional pain of distancing ourselves from the faith that we grow up in that our moms and dads raised us in. In other words, it would be too much emotionally for me to not believe in the resurrection. And so you just live, you don't really believe it, but you pretend you do for your whole life. That happens all the time. Listen, that's not an intellectual argument. That's an emotional one. And I just want to help you be honest about it if you don't believe it and to examine the evidence, to talk about it. It's okay to struggle with it. People who feel this way say that if Christ rose from the grave, then they, their family, their religion, and all their friends are wrong and that's just too much for me to handle emotionally. Here's another one that often gets us. We're jilted lovers. We feel like God has wronged us, that he somehow has let me down, that I had a miscarriage, that I suffered um, bankruptcy, that God didn't show up in my life, that I'm divorced earlier than I'm divorced at all. I can't believe it. And I'm divorced much earlier than I could have ever wanted to be. Listen, I'm just going to say this very clearly. You can't be angry at God and not believe in him at the same time. Are you with me? In the ancient Near East, there was an explosion of a worldview here. The Greek culture believed that there was the heavens and the earth, and they never met. And all of a sudden, through 12 men, within two centuries, there's this explosive new worldview that said heaven and earth have come together in a man, and his name is Jesus. And this took the whole Roman world by complete storm. It changed them. 
when I was asking some of you this week, what's the, what's the real importance of the resurrection? You know what most of you said to me? Like, what's the, what's the importance of the resurrection? And most of you said to me, because it brings me freedom. What does that mean, brings you freedom? Like, I think, like, like if you believe something, it kind of locks you down, doesn't it, right? I think you've been defined by it. But listen, it brings you freedom from your striving and your self-saving strategies, which we all have. Jesus died and was resurrected from the dead so that you could stop trying to save yourself through all of your self-saving, creative, I'm gonna muster up the strength and be nice to God so he'll love me back. That's not the gospel in the Bible. The gospel in scripture is that Jesus is the only one who got the A plus. And that he loves you and that he got the A plus for you, that he finished the race for you, that he lived the life you could never live, and that he died the death that you should have died. And he did it because he knew your name, and he loves you. It brings you incredible freedom. It also brings you this incredible sense of assurance that you can know that he loves you so much that it is finished. And then he marks that through an empty tomb. What an amazing gift that he gave us this empty tomb, a physical reality to remind us of our position in Christ, being in him, if you believe in Christ by faith. Now lastly, very quickly, in verse 32, at the very end of the passage that I read, this is one of my favorite passages of the Bible, it says, if the dead are not raised... Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. In other words, okay, I'm gonna cut this thing short in about two minutes and we're just gonna go party our heads off because tomorrow is it. Paul is saying that if the resurrection of Jesus Christ has not happened, then not only are we of all people to be pitied, but you should just go live it up because tomorrow that's it. In fact, Paul could go on to say this. He could say, you know what the basis of justice is in the world if you don't believe in the resurrection? There is none. So you might as well take that guy out who cut you off on the way to church this morning. Just take him out. You might as well take everybody who's ever done something wrong to you and you might as well repay them for their evil because justice would reside in you. The basis of justice in a civil society depends upon some objective standard of truth. Otherwise, you don't have justice. Well, some of you will say, well, look, you know, justice resides within the individual. It comes from me. Well, you know what? Adolf Hitler thought he was pretty just, and he, ki- he killed six million people. So certainly nobody in here would say, that, okay, it, it resides in the self. Well, okay, it resides in oh, the community, Oh, also, it's a beautiful place to live. We can figure out what's right and wrong. Okay, well, let's think about what history. It is true. You know, two heads are better than one, as the saying goes. But the entire nation in early America not only condoned, but pushed human trafficking and slavery for economic purposes. The community endorsed it. So the community may be more reliable, but it's not reliable. What about technology? 
You know, the irony is that from the great enlightenment, right, from the enlightenment of the 18th century until today, there's just been this incredible rush of new devices. I've got a phone in my pocket. You've got one in your pocket, in your purse. We live our life connected. And we think about how has social media brought us together more and more? Well, I'm still pretty lonely. And I know you are too. And the world's pretty broken. And it's funny that all these things that technology promises us, we're still back at square one. So if it's not the self and it's not the community and it's not technology that delivers us, what is it? Paul says that he delivered to us that which he also received. That is, that there is an objective standard of truth. There has to be. Otherwise, there'd be no basis for justice in the world. You're for social justice, I am too. There's no basis for it without the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that our deepest problems run far too deep for the self to figure out or for the community to figure out or for technology to solve because our problem is sin. Our problem is that we take many things, even good things, and we make them ultimate things, and they destroy our relationship with God. They cut us off from our fellowship with the Father. And the glorious news of the resurrection is in the midst of this text, Paul says that there are two benefits of the resurrection. And he says the first benefit is that we can live. Notice that he says in 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. But then he said, just as all died in Adam, so in Christ all have been made alive. You can be made alive today. And some of you who don't believe in Jesus need to today to see that he loves you in the midst of all of your messiness amidst all of the stuff that you feel guilty about, he has come to lift that weight off your shoulders because you can't do it. The resurrection reminds you of his assurance. Secondly, God will win over the injustices of the world. There's a lot of jilted lovers in here. And the resurrection reminds us that he's gonna win. In the end, he will be the only one standing over all of his enemies of sin and in death. And every poet has always tried to express this the best they could. John Donne said in the 16th century, one short sleep passed and we wake eternally and death shall be no more because death thou shalt die. Because we have a Savior who died the death that we should have died so that we might live in Him and have eternal life. Friends, this is not a milkshake experiment. This is your life. Do you believe in the resurrection? Do you see the implications that it has for everything about your hope and your assurance and your comfort and your peace? The gospel is waiting for you. Will you believe it? Let's pray. Father, we know that our only proper response to you is to run to you in faith and repentance, amazed at your power. So would you move us, we pray, 
toward repentance because your grace is enough. You finished the race for us so that we would not be left in our sins. Thank you for your love for sinners like me and each of us. You are risen. Hallelujah.